Chapter 2 Fight or Die With a distracted nod of his head, Duncan signaled Broody to gather the sheep for home. So occupied was Duncan with the discovery of the passage, he barely heard the bleeding of his black-faced charges as he followed Broody and the little mob down the traced steepness into the glen. Just ahead, a stream chattered its way down the narrow valley and then leveled off for several yards into a quiet pool. With no apparent signal from Dukan, Broody shot forward and halted the sheep along the banks of the pool. Duncan smiled. Habit had almost taught his dog how to care the sheep without him. He watched the new spring lambs, their clubby legs looking too small to their fresh white bodies as they frisked about the older sheep. Most black-faced ewes bore only one lamb in springtime, but this year three ewes had delivered twins. Three ewes had delivered twins. Duncan never tried to, to never tried of the heel-kicking playfulness of a new pairs of brothers and sisters. Kneeling at the edge of the stream, he scooped up a hand full of water and scrubbing at his muddy face, he gasped at the numbing cold, coldness of it. With a handful of wet heather, he worked away at his dirt-covered hands and arms. It couldn't do to show up at home for dinner all muddied up. His mother would only turn him out and send him off for a good scrub. Wiping his face dry on his plate, Duncan smiled as two lambs budded and frolicked in the tall grass. As he watched, his mind wandered to the stories flittering off the glens of Darley that told of Sir James Turner's dragoons prowling around stealing sheep in payment. They called it payment for fines. Worse than that, whole farms had been burned to the ground and ministers imprisoned for unsilenced preaching. Drenkin soldiers burst in on worshippers and demanded anything of the value from the poor. One man described the soldiers with arms so loaded with spoil, coats, plates, even shoes, that looked as if they'd been stripping the slain after the battle. With his stick, he made a savage cut at the clump of gorse. He couldn't help hating the English. Now that's an unkind cut indeed, Master Duncan, came a voice from the slope opposite the pool. Duncan looked up at the speaker, an old man, his grinning face topped with a tattered wool bonnet clinging precociously to one side. Long yellow-white hair fell into his shoulders and joined a full beard at the same heel. Ancient Grier, the, their nearest neighbor, who ha, had lived in these hills forever. Should I tell Greer about my discovery? Duncan wondered. <coughs> <coughs> 
Duncan wondered. But if it were meant for enemies of the laird and the kirk, I'd be forgiving of ye for it, that I will. A good evening to ye, ancient Grier. Duncan called up to the old man. Aye, tis a good evening, mused the old man, stepping nimbly down the hillside. Duncan smiled as the old farmer joined him at the pool. The old man wore loose-fitting loose wool trousers, patched and stitched, stitched too com- so completely that Duncan had long ago given up trying to tell what the original wool might have looked like. Over a grayish-brown coat, similarly repaired, a blade draped across his wide shoulders, shoulders once broad and strong, but now bent with age. Completing his tattered outfit, the old man wore a pair of knee-high leather boots that winded, that winded, and folded over at the tops that looked battered as they were like a footgear worn by a pikeman from some 25 years earlier during the wars. Ancient Grier had fought in those wars. Duncan often found in him a ready supply of reviting stories from those heady days. The old man continued, Each night after prayers I lay my head on my pillow and I wonder if I'll wake a oop on the other side. And each morn I wakes on this side, so fur I he been so, as ye see. Here the old man lifted his white head, and with a broad smile he continued, I bless King Jesus and thanks, and thanks him for another day to glorify and enjoy him, as it says in Catholicism. But now, when, when the times are so bad, blurted Duncan, wondering at the old man's faith, how can ye possibly enjoy anything when that hillhound Turner and his dragoons plundering crops and flocks and leaving families to starve to death? Some, they say, not worth rounding out for swinging, he shoots the dead on the spot. Aye, said the old man. Go on, give it a mouth lad. You'll feel better for it. Duncan continued. My father got a word of another fine for not attending the popish services in Darley, and he said that they read your name out of non-compreance last Sabbath day as well. How will we how will we ye pray? They'll take everything we have. Like as not Turner'll kill ye. And how is it that ye'll go about glorifying God and enjoy him when we've got done with ye? When they've done with ye. Flushed, Duncan fell silent. He'd said more than he should have. Grier nodded, sa- 
silly and worked his mouth from side to side in the thought, his curly mustache and beard sticking out in a circular pattern as he worked Duncan's question over his mind, over in his mind. Now here's a question that wants answering, said, said ancient Grier. But before he could continue, Broody nudged his master with his long nose. Duncan glanced up at the flock, ambling in all directions. With a slight jerk of his head, he sent Broody striking like a bullet in half circle around the scattering sheep. Ouch! Do your duty, lad, continued the old farmer, but we'll talk tonight. Your good mother sent up your bonny sisters earlier to invite me to family prayers with you. I bring my pipes, he added with a wink. But so ye had to God an answer to work round in your young fate till then. In spite of all, I enjoy the Lord for his mercy, his goodness, his grace, his comfort. My cup fairly overflows with it all. Mind ye, I'd find it overflowing of a wee bit more to me liking if it went and flooded out the English in, pro in the process. With that, the old man turned and headed back up the hill. Duncan looked after him in wonder. He turned and followed Rudy and the flock already moving eagerly toward home. Familiar strains from the Psalter echoed from echoed after Duncan as the old farmer sang on his way up to the hill to his croft. The Lord is my shepherd, I do not want. He makes me lie down in the in pastures green. He laid me death he laideth me the quiet the quiet waters by. The way stiffened the way widened and just ahead lay his family's cottage. Peat smoke drifting from the stone chimney that rose from one end above the hither thatched roof. Duncan's stomach growled. His home seemed to nestle securely, securely and inconspicuously into the green and purple in the surrounding hills. Through stories about, uh, stories abounded of troubles and cruelties, living high up as they did, and several miles from the village of Dalry, and the troubles with the English king seemed far away. But Duncan couldn't help fearing, maybe even hoping that those troubles might someday follow the rumors up the hills and reach his family. Pressed together against the dry stained dikes, low walls stacked with that mortar, surrounding the McKeith Croft, the flock of sheep formed a solid mass of winter-thick wool, backs broken only by clicking gears of curling horns. Duncan vaulted over the wall and opened his wooden gate from inside. Broody took a crouching step forward toward the flock. 
and the sheep poured through the gates like fighting men through a breach, clustered against the cottage and encircled by a protective wall. Here the sheep would be safe from the wolves. There were restlessness then da- when danger threatened. Sheriff as an early warning from the family within. Duncan thought again of their discovery. Unless his father asked, he decided not to tell him about it just yet. He and Broody would explore the passage further before saying anything to anyone. After securing the gate, he grabbed up an armload of peat from the stack at the south end of the cottage. The McKeiths always stacked their peat on the south side. Duncan had heard his father say, Peat is stacked on the south and dries better the, the, throughout what passes for the summer, and dried peat gives ye more warmth throughout the num, numbing wet times. Times when the, a warm fire is life itself. Bursting out the low entrance, braids bouncing, and homespun dress flying as she ran, Duncan's seven-year-old sister, Jenny, flew toward him. Toggling behind came three-year-old Angus, gripping his toy long bow and arrows, and a grin stretching along his round face. Duncan cried Jenny, grabbing his leg, then doing her best scramble up onto his back. Angus wrapped wrapped chubby arms and legs around Duncan's leg and held on, squealing with delight as Duncan staggered forward. Eleven-year-old Fiona looked on, her face dimpled with a shy grin. Save me, Fiona, I'm done for, he called with a mock of goo. Gooish, gooish, falling uh, to one knee, his arms extended in suffocation. Fiona planted a kiss on his cheek and laughed as he struggled under Jenny and Angus and Angus's clambering. Jenny finally swung her legs into his shoulders and sat proudly gripping his hair with her hands, Duncan wincing with each twist of his hair. Uh, with each twist of his hair. Broody sat on his haunches, his head cocked to one side, and watched the familiar welcome Duncan's little sister and brother inflicted with their big brother. I've not seen so wild a gaggle o' brains in the whole Scotland. Duncan's mother called, a good naturally, from just inside the low doorway. Fiona, Jenny, you fetch yourselves back in here and help me lay the table for supper. Be quick about it, then. Duncan disentangled himself from his sisters and reached from Angus's putty, pudgy fist, intending to hold his hand as he went inside. Prying open the fleshy fist, Duncan discovered a moist, warty mound that 
what appeared to be arms and legs. Angus grinned at his bride. Puddock, he informed Duncan proudly. You have been busy then, said Duncan, stroked the frog. But you can that mother do, mother old do, if ye bring a creature like that inside. She'll turn ye into a puddock, she will. Angus's eyes grew wider. We'd best just leave it here, Duncan continued Duncan, setting the frog in a niche in the stone next to the doorway. Taking his little brother's hand, Duncan stretched to his full height as he stepped over to the threshold. He felt a thrill of satisfaction as his head brushed the slightly slightly against the stone lintel over the slow opening. His mother had to duck slightly when she would pass in and out, and his father always bent over with his hand on the lintel, his shoulders to- turning sideways as he passed through. Though he still had to stretch and roll up into his toes to do it, Duncan found a good deal of pleasure that in what brushing out his head each time he passed in and out of the family craft. It seemed to hold a significance that he would not quite explain. Nevertheless, his delight in accomplishment was undiminished. Once inside, he planted a kiss on his mother's soft cheek. Your safe return, Duncan, said his mother, lines of worry softening around her eyes. Regular reports of fines, arrests, and even executions made their way into the hills where Duncan's family kept their kept their living. These were hard times, and though his mother seldom complained, Duncan thought the strain of worry showed more often in his in her eyes. She was used to law to loss and disappointments. His mother had delivered six live children into appointments. His mother had delivered six live children into the world. Duncan's older brother had died as a baby and was buried near the Invenary in the highlands where his father had lived as a boy. Between Duncan and his sisters, another boy was born and then swept away by a fever before before he was old enough to talk. But for all that loss and grief, his mother's blue eyes usually sparkled with cheerfulness, and Duncan loved the enthusiastic glow that was all that always seemed to animate her features. But your return dirty, his mother went on pulling up the corner of her apron, making toward his face. And all flapped up, too, she added, spotting the bruise on Duncan's cheek. However did you come by that? Just a wee scratch, mother, said Duncan. Never mind it. He smiled at her. You are the prettiest mother a lad could ever ask in all the world. 
He planted another kiss on her cheek. The sisters giggled from, from there where they put the wooden trenchers and cups on the table. You, ye are, mother, agreed Jenny, who, through the youngest of the two girls, was always the first to speak of them both. But it won't work, their mother said, looking all prettier, with the last light of the day shining through a narrow window, an, uh, uh, shining through a narrow window, and a warm firelight playing on her abron hair, uh, subdued now from its more youthful flame color by uh, the passage of time. A smile tugged at the corners of her mouth, and a flush of delight shone in her cheeks. You're still not pulling yourself up at to this table, Duncan, she went on, wearing a half-bray on her face. Fault is scrubbing, then. But I did, protested Duncan, not enough to suit me, his mother cut off, nor enough to set much fear in the heart of the dirt. I shouldn't think by the look of you. While Duncan scrubbed in the basin, his father came in from plowing. Blessings abound, he said, patting Broody's head. Then, planting a kiss on each of his daughter's foreheads and giving Duncan a mainly squeeze and a hearty pat on the back with honest hands made a large and coarse from years of hard work. With merriment in his eyes, he then spun to their mother around and embraced her. Holding her at arm's length, he said, Tut, tut, poor Solomon. There's nothing prettier or wiser in all the world. That, that's just what all have been trying to tell me. Tell, tell her, said Duncan. Flatters all, she said. Flatters all, she mm. said. A flush mm. of pleasure in her cheeks. Not so, my love, said Duncan's father, planting another kiss on her forehead. Flatterers mean to hurt ye, and Duncan... And I mean love to protect ye. His face clouded as he added quietly, Come what may. Then, uh, when all was ready, they sat around the the trestle table, the peat fire hissing in the crude stone fireplace. Duncan's father prayed the Lord's blessing on the food and offered their thanks for it. And And the family ate their simple fare, broth and oat cakes spread with soft crudy cheese. Dunkel gave himself a wound, offered little Jenny when she finished her broth. Duncan called at his little sister. How'd you come by that, lad? asked his father, his tongue rising with concern. Duncan never lied to his parents, but now he had to admit to hitting himself with his own stick while having an imaginary battle. Fiona and I can how he done it, offered Jenny presentedly. Duncan stopped chewing. Ancient Briar and the girls had come up from for a visit that day. That day. Could they have been watching his storm in the castle? 
He studied Jenny's wide eyes and features bulging with merriment. Fiona studied the food on her trencher and wouldn't meet his eye. That tittled him. Play yakking father, said Duncan, coloring and taking a vicious bite of old cake. Play yakking. Play acting, said his father. He studied his son silently before continuing. And the wee lambs, while ye was play acting, they they were only play. We were they only play acting at nourishing themselves, at generally trying to get a decent start of life. Answer that lad before. Uh, answer that lad before Duncan could reply. His father continued, "What what was it ye were play acting at? It was." More rehearsing, father said, Duncan, and liking and liking the sound of that, he nodded and said it again. Rehearsing it was, father. Did ye kill, kill them all? Them all? Asked Jenny. No, Jenny. I'll not go. And how ye talking about killing? Their fa- said their father. His voice firm. But his sandy eyebrows raised in firm supplication. Wrath dribbling from his chin, Angus looked with wide eyes from his father to Duncan as they spoke. I might be so bold as call it training, father, said Duncan, hoping to divert his father's attention from Jenny's question. Training for a resisting covenant breakers and all up oppressors of the kirk this sounded better duncan continued they were it was no mere play acting i was training that was training it was said his father in his face growing sober we'll soon have to fight them said duncan his eyes pleading with his father fight them or die fight 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 sam sank at angus lashing his spoon in the air as if as if it were a claymore. It slipped from his pudgy hand and hit the wall with a thud, then clattered onto the floor. Dyer fighting him, added Duncan's mother, a bit lit in her voice. First shame, Angus, she scolded, retrieving his spoon. Jenny took another bite of the oatcake and smirked at Duncan. Fighting the war were so far removed from anything Jenny had yet experienced experienced in her short life that she decided all this talk must be just part of a game. Fiona grew pale and stared at her trencher, her hands folded in her lap. I'll not have ye casting gloom over this fine supper your mother's gone prepared for us, said Duncan's father, his voice rising. But they're but they're coming, Sandy," said Duncan's mother, nervously putting a wisp of arbor, her hair black and back in place, her eyes casting out as if soldiers might even that moment be lurking in the shadows of the craft. Mary, Mary," said Duncan's father, creepingly. His eyes fell on each of them. In turn, he continued. The devil wants 
us running about tearing our hair with fear that might happen to us. He paused with an expression of determination and wonder spread across his face. Duncan had often seen the father, his father look that way. But our sweet Lord Jesus, he wants us to obey. And Duncan, I'll not have you raising the alarm. You'll be stirring the pot and scaring the wee ones. Now, there's an end of it. Duncan had learned long ago that when his father spoke like that, the topic was closed. But why didn't his father want to fight? There were wrongs enough. He looked at his father, his father's broad shoulders and muscular arms. And though his father's face was often alive with merriment, when he was angry, his determined forehead and fierce eyes could set fear in the stoutest heart. So why couldn't, wouldn't he fight? If Duncan hadn't known his father better, he might have been even tempted to think that he was afraid to fight. Try as he might, the gloom lingered throughout the rest of the meal. When Duncan heard it, a faint scarling of the ancient griper's pipes, drifting down the brae into the cottage. There now, Grier approaches fit to wake the dead from here to the Dumfries, said Duncan mother. Said Duncan's mother, clearing the table. He'll tell a story, said Jenny hopefully. Duncan's father eyes clouded slightly. Won't he, father? Jenny persisted. After prayers, said her father shortly. Ancient Grier halted outside their croft, piping now sounds sounding loud and alarming. Duncan's heart beats Duncan's heart beats faster. The wailing of pipes always made him wish he had two fisted broadsword in the hand and a pack of English or covenant breakers to show himself at. He wasn't overly particular with. He and his sisters and Angus, toddling behind, ran to the door and threw it open. A path of light fell on the old man, his face red and cheeks bulging as he blew air into the goat's stomach of his bagpipes. Lit up against the dusk, ancient Grier marched in the palace as he played, until with a desolating screech, not unlike the sound of a goose at the chopping block, the tune became an upward end. <coughs> Peace be on his house, said the, the, said the old man as they welcomed him into the cottage. After a brief conversation about the spring planting, goat kids and lambs, they all sat down across the table. Duncan's father said solemnly, let us worship God. He then led the family in prayer, full of devotion and hope, his voice rising and falling with passion as he prayed. 
When he finished, he took the family Bible in his great hands and opened it slowly and carefully as if it were at some rare delicate treasure, easily broken if mis- mishandled. Handled. Hear the word of our God from Proverbs of Solomon, the 16th chapter. He said, Reverence and firmlessness in his voice. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to than to shall plunder with the proud. Duncan's father paused, eyeing his son over the sacred pages. <coughs> Duncan felt his cheeks burning as his father read the text to the second time before continuing. Why couldn't he have have to read about slaying enemies and trampling their faces in the streets. There was plenty of that in that holy book, too. His father read on, Better be better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who, may, who takes a city. Duncan studied his father's face. As he read, determination in his brow took the resolve, but Duncan thought, looked like as unshakable as faith itself. But Duncan feared that his father's determination his father's determination was a different kind than what he was needed to drive out the English or wreck or wreck vengeance on covenant breakers. His father renounced the psalm that they were to sing and the and when they finished singing, ancient Briar spoke first. Ye no doubt read last, e- last evening the same sixteenth of Proverbs, he said, rising and standing in the back of, of the peat fire. His lips of a king speak as an oracle. He paused, eyeing all the room fiercely. His voice rose, and all his mouth should not betray justice. With each word, Briar's fist came down in, onto his open palm with a loud smack. Little Angus squealed and slapped his fudgy fist into his palm like the old man. Aye, we read it, said Duncan's father, looking steadily at the old man, which reminds me of our present monarch's grandsire, King James. King, Jam- King James the Fourth, James the First, the English called him. Grier continued folding his hands behind his back, rocking back on his heels, gazing up into the murkiness of the rafters. Duncan's mother followed the gray. The fo- Duncan's mother followed Grier's gaze, and she scowled at the rustling of in the thatch. She hated the rest that lodged so freely above the family. He remember the treachery of King James, Conti- continued, betraying justice for St. Andrew Melville, who was called to London on pretense of hearing our Presbyterian grievances. Of course he don't remember, it was more than 50 years ago. But I remember, I remember. Nothing, not nothing, no, 
knowing he stroke his long white beard, and Duncan and his sisters listened expectantly. Now there was a strong girl of a king. Old man went on, who ruled by lies and deceit as he breathed. Breaking his word, he he threw worthy Mr. Melville in amongst the rats and fleas of the wretched tower. He nearly split out the last words. Then he paused, eyes defiant, and he gazed into the eyes of the children. What for? asked Jenny. I was hoping you'd be asking, said Briar, nodding in a satisfied manner and resuming his gazing up at the rafters. All for telling the king the truth about himself. What would the king hate the truth so? asked Duncan. An unjust one, that's who, replied ancient Grier fiercely. What did he tell the king? asked Fiona softly. He told him, said the ancient Grier, cleaning his throat importantly. There are two kings in the kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, head of commonwealth. There is King Jesus, head of the Kirk, whose subject, whose subject is King James, and of whose kingdom he is not head, nor lord, but a member. He called a curse to light upon James' idea of trying to take place of King Jesus <coughs> in his Kirk. Sputtering and fuming, James forbade the general assembly of the Kirk to meet, appointing his favorites to be bishop, bishops uh, in the Presbyterian Scotland, mind me. And then he tried making us kneeling, a uh, kneeling Kirk and introduced, and introduced other popish, popish foppery. What, what's popish mean? asked Jenny. Anything not confronting to how the book tells us God wants to be worshipped, that's popish, said Grier. James even went and installed a, ki a kist of whistles at St. Gill's in Edinburgh. Aye, he did, and in, in the very shadow of John Knox, of John Knox's pulpit. What, what's a kist? Or wheels, asked Duncan. English call them pipe organs, said 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 the Grier, spitting out the name. The flames of the sheep tallow candles, quivering precariously with the, his words. Roman Catholic churches have pipe organs, he concluded, knowing, nodding knowingly. I, the Popish churches, have walls and roofs, said Duncan's father, a smile playing at the corners of his mouth. Would ye have us dispense the walls and roofs of the kirk? Grier blinked rapidly and frowned. No kissed oh whistles uh, in the psalter, he said defiantly. Aye, but we're told to praise Lord with all kinds of musical instruments," replied Duncan's father. "And I can, and I can see as how an organ doesn't fit that description with all those lovely 
sounds wrapped in one instrument. He leaned forward. That sound. He leaned forward and set another cut of, of peat in the fire. <coughs> it's how you use a thing that makes it good or bad. Ancient Briar, not a thing itself. Frowning, Ancient Briar cleaned his throat and blinked up at the rafters. Well, I might just agree with you, he said, looking levelly at Dugan's father. If you said the same, Sandy McKeith about your sword. Duncan turned to look at his father. Before he could reply, Fiona, in her quiet voice, asked, what became of, of King James? James died, replied Grier, eager to return to his tale. And thanks for God, and thanks be God to, for it. But his son Charles, I, he was even more deluded than his father at thinking he ruled the Kirk in Parliament. Charles turned those archbishop, his archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud. His name the archbishop praised then interjected Dukin. ay but there's nothing worth praising about archfriend loud uh, continued Briar. and before scotland knew it he forced their popish english prayer book on the kirk was what followed was riots in the streets of Edinburgh, and bishops wars, and the bishops wars. How did it happen? Begged Jenny eagerly. Oh, oh, that I'll tell, lassie," said Grier, "and you'll be liking telling it to be sure. Sing, uh, uh, you'll be telling it for sure. So that was chapter two. Bye guys, see you later. See you later, see you later, see ya, see ya. Later, bye guys.